Hi, Poison Pals. What is up? We are back in your ear holes. <laughs> Welcome back to That Shit is Poison episode lucky number 13 with your host, Harini Bot, And your other host, <laughs> Megan Gessner. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, guys. We're going to do a, for episode number 13, we're going to talk about all superstitions. No, we're not. <laughs> Man, now I don't want to do my story anymore. I no, shouldn't no, no. do something <laughs> based on superstitions. Wow. Yeah. Episode number 13. I actually love anything to do with superstitions. And Megan, do you have, is your, is your mom superstitious? Hmm. I think on some level, yes. Because like, She's got that Southeast Asian superstition. Yes. Because I was going to ask, has she ever told you things while growing up that you're like, oh, you can't do this or you you, sh- you yeah. can't do that? Dude, I always share this story. It is one of my favorite stories that my mom would tell us when we were little. I would say this would count as like a folklore superstition from her culture. Mm-hmm. But basically the story goes, my mom, she grew up in like rural Malaysia so in the jungle yeah yes. they call the village the kampong she would tell us a story about how like in the kampong at night as villagers in the jungle you always wanted to be careful because there would be a shaman living in the forest mm. and the shaman would have like little minions that would work for him her mm-hmm. I don't know the gender of the shaman yeah. but you get the idea <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And these little minions, my mom would describe them as um, like baby heads, yeah, floating baby heads Ooh. with entrails coming out oh my of the, like the neck portion. Okay, and mind you, she's she's telling me this story and my sister the story when we we're like, <laughs> I don't know, eight, nine, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and like little baby heads with entrails that would come out, yeah. And the shaman would send them off at night when the kampong is quiet and dark Mm -hmm. and everyone's asleep. And if you were sleeping with your toes exposed, the little minions would suck your toes, (laughs) suck your toes for blood. And that's how they would get their energy. And I forgot to mention the reason why the shaman would send them out is so that they could collect gold from the villagers. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. But in their... In their process of collecting gold, they would sometimes get hungry (laughs) and they would suck the blood out of your toes. So my mom would always be like, so make sure you cover your toes with your blankets when you sleep. And she would tuck our toes in at night. And I, to this day, do not sleep with my toes untucked. Dude, that cracks Mm -hmm. me up. And that's, first of all, that's that's (laughs) such a good story from the village. I can totally see your mom doing that, like thinking, totally thinking like, oh, this is a real like night, good nighttime story. This is a great bedtime story for my little kiddos. <laughs> and you oh, and you and are just like, uh, I can't sleep tonight. <laughs> no. no, I think my mom knew what she was doing. She she's permanently traumatized us. <laughs> it's okay. But that's one example of superstition. Other than that, I don't know the depth of her culture superstition in terms of like are certain numbers unlucky Mm -hmm. um, is like pouring salt on the table or spilling salt on the table unlucky. Like, I don't know. What about you? What about you? Yeah. 
my mom is very superstitious and it, it ranges. It ranges <laughs> like it's to the mundane where she's like, you can't cut your nails at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Or you can't cut anything at night. Like you can't cut your hair and your or your nails. And I think that kind of stems from you don't want to stop your growth. Yeah, yeah. You should just do in the morning. So that's something that she does. But your story kind of brought up something to my mind, this is like very common in India. The superstition is whenever you see a cobra, mm. that means that there's treasure nearby mm-hmm. and that the reason the cobra is there is because it's guarding the treasure. Ooh. And if you get up close, and so this is not like a normal cobra, mm-hmm. like it's a big ass cobra, like larger than normal. And then if you were ever to, you know, come face to face with this cobra, it would have a jewel on its like forehead. Yeah. To signify that it is yeah. the treasure master. <laughs> Dude. But anyway, last, not last, well, I guess 2019, Dave and I went to India. We went to his family's place mm-hmm. and his family has this old factory. And on the factory land, there was rumors, like this factory has been there for many, many a year, mm-hmm. but there's rumors that there was a cobra. There was cobra sightings. Mm-hmm. And Dave's dad, when he would go to the factory at night or just like during the day, they would find the next morning these big cobra snake skins. Like I'm talking like almost like a foot and a half wide. Dude. Yeah. Jeez. But they never saw it. I mean, at least at least that's um, next level. I know that is next level. <laughs> so they thought there was for sure buried treasure yeah. there somewhere. And apparently the person that is this maybe this is another superstition i don't know but mm. apparently the person that's supposed to be able to sense where the treasure is is supposed to mm. be someone outside of the family so when i came to india they're like hey mm. go find the treasure <laughs> and and my dad was like <laughs> yeah they're like they're like harini go into that crawl space and try to find the cobra and the treasure <laughs> and they're like goodbye now <laughs> Um, I love that story. I love it because as someone who loves like high fantasy, I do feel like (laughs) it is, you know, it's like, I imagine this is a superstition that goes centuries back, but still Mm -hmm. I'm like as someone who's into like high fantasy and dragons and all that. Like, I almost feel like it's a contemporary version of, um, dragon guarding with treasure, like snakes and lizards to me. Those were probably dinosaurs were dragons. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are they are now <laughs> yeah you know i like to play pretend a lot in my head oh, I but um anyway. that's why we're friends <laughs> i'm thinking more about my story that i'm about to like that we'll be doing mm-hmm. for a podcast today in some ways it kind of does have to do with superstition like superstitions held by a cult yes oh okay so we're going so, out down the cult path today yes we are all right yeah. Megan, so on that note Girl, why don't you pick your poison for the week? Yes, yes, yes. And before we settle in, I'm going to do Harini's part here. Get yourself settled in. Grab your favorite libation. Pick your own poison. Relax. Listen to our soothing voices. And also don't forget to rate and review. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) shit. She's coming in hot. I'm coming in hot. Covering all the bases. Mm. No, no. I love you all, my poison pals. Now we can continue. (laughs) All right, all right. Yeah, okay, so picking my poison. So today, I am going to be talking about the 1995 Tokyo subway attacks. Shut up. Did you just hear about this in, like, poison class or something? (laughs) 
points. Like, what? <laughs> no, but this was on the docket to be one of my stories. Oh, that is so I'm weird. To, no, 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 no. But I'm so happy you're doing it. This was bound to happen. I'm actually surprised yeah. it hasn't happened sooner. I'm so yeah. excited because I've not done the research yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm glad. Okay. So I'm going to start with the day of the attacks. And then we'll get into mm -hmm. all the juicy details. So, oh yeah, I'm so excited. So it's um, March 20th, 1995. Harini and I are maybe about a year old or some change. <laughs> we are wee babes. And we obviously would have mm -hmm. no idea that this was happening. And in fact, I never knew that it happened nope. until I researched it. And I feel like that's a lot of a lot of our stories because it just seems like these murders and these attacks happened, you know, when we were either really, really young or just mm -hmm. not having the capacity to care about it at the time. We were playing pretend in our heads. Still thinking about dragons and whatnot. <laughs> so, yeah, March 20th, 1995, during prime rush hour on the Tokyo Metro. At the time, it was called the Tokyo Subway. Mm hmm. There are reports of bags in three train cars. I think there's three train cars that are leaking some sort of liquid. And witnesses are like, these bags are leaking liquid. And suddenly they feel this intense stinging in their eyes from the fumes as this liquid evaporates. Ooh, okay. Shit. And what ends up happening is people start to collapse on the train. And even though the population of Tokyo and Japan as a whole is much more than it was in 95, I think. Mm -hmm. Y'all can fact check mm -hmm. me on that. I would imagine that during rush hour on a Tokyo's train was probably super condensed, super jam-packed. So there's just mayhem as people start to fall and vomit in the train cars and collapse and there's convulsing, just sheer panic. Okay? Yeah. And this occurs in trains specifically passing through the Kasumagaseki and Nagatacho areas mm -hmm. of Tokyo, which is where the Diet, aka the Japanese parliament, is headquartered. So it's specifically in oh. trains passing through like Japanese parliament area in Tokyo. Question. Yes. Again, maybe jumping the gun. All good. But is there a connection with the fact that it's passing through the Japanese government and the fact that possibly it's supposed to target mm -hmm. people who work for the government? Because that might be their morning commute. Yes, yes, yes. That is all correct. So yes, this is a very intentional placement of these bags with liquid passing through this government area. Mm -hmm. And and before I get to why is the government targeted and who is targeting it, I want to talk about what's in the bags. Mm -hmm. The bags were filled with the liquid version of nerve agent Sarin, S-A-R-I-N. Is that how you say it? I mean, I don't know, but I've, I've always been curious. So I did the whole, yeah. how do you pronounce Sarin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it said, it said like, Sarin. Sarin. And so I was like, okay. And that could be because, like, quick background on Surin, it was manufactured. It's a man-made nerve agent. Mm -hmm. It's a man-made nerve agent. And it was manufactured in Germany in, like, 1937. Oh, wow. Maybe that's why the A is a little bit more soft yeah. and round and because it's, it's a German-made thing. That makes but sense. I don't speak German. So that's just, you know, an assumption yeah. <laughs> there. Anyway, so I'm going to be pronouncing it Surin for the rest Perfect. of this. But if it's not pronounced that way, I apologize. So this nerve agent is on these trains and what ultimately happens is 13 people die 
and 5,500 people are injured to varying degrees. Jeez. An additional 1,000 people probably suffer some temporary vision problems from this leaking Surin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that is the attack. Okay. Why did this attack happen? (laughs) I will give you the answer, but to our logical brains, it still won't make sense. (laughs) So the attack was actually done at the hands of a Japanese cult called Om Shinrikyo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Shinrikyo means supreme truth. But for the purpose of this podcast, I will just be saying Om, A-U-M. And this group, Om Shinrikyo, they were a religious group at the time that kind of evolved into a cult Mm -hmm. under its leader, which we will talk about more later. And it was targeting the parliamentary area in Tokyo because they were growing paranoid that the government was trying to oust them in all their actions as a religious, quote unquote, religious organization. Got it. But it's deeper than that. One of the root of their beliefs in this cult slash organization was that all non-believers would essentially go to hell mm-hmm. unless they were killed by current believers. What? And I think there's actually probably like a term for that sort of belief Uh process, which is like, if we as the believers murder non-believers, they will find salvation. Mm -hmm. That is one of the reasons why this attack was was carried out. Mm -hmm. The Om group also believed they were considered what's called a doomsday cult group. Mm -hmm. They heavily believed in the end of days. They have heavily believed in Armageddon. Mm -hmm. They believed that If they killed people, they would save them from, like, the impending Armageddon. Right. Of course, it is tied into also paranoia towards the government. Yeah. So it's not just rooted in belief. It was also rooted in, like, we need to act fast so that we're not caught by government officials. But ultimately, the attack led to them being caught and convicted of crimes. Yep. Yep. So do we want to get into what the heck is this cult? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's probably the best motive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, what was I didn't know there what were the other options. <laughs> you didn't give me other options. <laughs> or go into Surin and what Surin is. But I think maybe I'll go into Surin at the end. We'll do toxicology okay. at the end. Yes. That sounds cool. All right, all right. Okay. So I think all cult stories need to start with who created it and who is their leader. Right. Because a cult usually is nothing but the person who created it. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're hand in hand. Yeah. Backing the whole thing. I've, well, first of all, I just have to say, I am I wonder if this is the first and last cult that happened in Japan, because I just feel like the Japanese people, they are not to be duped. Right? <laughs> like, it's so tough. Like this right? one, I think this one was kind of I was telling Harini before we even started recording. I was like, this one might be a, more than I bit off more than I can chew with this story. And I think part of that is because I really don't have a sense of Japanese culture. Like I am not an expert on Japan at all. I enjoy what media they produce, but that does not make me an expert on their culture. And what's really tough about the story is that it's happened in the 90s. And it's like 90s Japanese 
culture could be very, very different from late 2010s Japanese culture sort of thing. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I tried to have the most unbiased mind here and not make any assumptions and not try to apply any Western ideologies Mm -hmm. on the actions that occur in this story or in in these events. Because I like I don't know what was happening in Japan from the late 80s to 90s that made a cult like this become something. So let's start with Ohm and how did it get created? So there is a man. Once upon a time. (laughs) There there was a man. Let's backtrack. So Ohm Shinrikyo was established in 1987 by a Shoko Asahara. I am going to be using the westernized versions of saying first name, then last name. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though I know that in Japan, it is family name first and then their first name. So mm-hmm. technically, the proper way to say his name is Asahara Shoko. Mm-hmm. But he's also a murderer. And I'm not sure if I <laughs> want to give him that. Yeah, that respect. Yeah. So, yeah. That's valid. <laughs> yeah. His name is Shoko Asahara. His real name, he was actually born as Chizuo Matsumoto. Okay. And he was born March 2nd of 1955 in the Kumamoto Prefecture which is on the island of Kyushu in South Japan. So the very southern part of Japan, that's where he was born. He was born to a large family. He's one of seven children, and his family was pretty poor. Mm -hmm. They were tatami mat makers. So they made, like, mats for, you know, Japanese houses. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Tatami mats, the flooring. Mm -hmm. So that's what his family did. He actually had infantile glaucoma, Mm. which means that while he was growing up, he lost sight in one of his eyes and partial vision in the other eye. So he's, you know, legally blind. And he even went to a school for the blind. Oh, Weirdly, though. What was interesting about my research on Shoko Ashihara is that I tried to find information on like his upbringing mm-hmm. and what kind of might hint at why he became the person yeah. he becomes around in the story. But I really could not find anything. Interesting. And it's kind of disappointing. All I have to give is that he just he's like just a bad egg because mm-hmm. when he went to school, he was apparently a bully. Oh. And he would actually scam kids out of their money and he would hurt and abuse his peers oh. for their money and stuff like that. So he was actually a pretty severe bully at a very young age. And that's why I'm like, that's interesting. what was his household culture like? Right. But I did not come across any information there. I mean, my first thought mm-hmm. is, I mean, we all hear this all the time. A person that is bullying at school is usually bullied at home. Yeah. So there must, I mean, th- these are all assumptions, of course course. Yeah. But that's kind of my first thought. But also, it's interesting that you say or talk about him having infantile glaucoma. It kind of puts him right off the bat as being different from his big family of other siblings who are, quote unquote, normal. Mm-hmm. And I can see that as something where he he bullies people or do these things to other people to gain some sort of feeling of power and control. Yeah, absolutely. And my mind kind of went there, too. And it's just so hard because, like, we don't have solid evidence of that. Right. But I kind of felt the same way when I was reading his story. I was like, maybe because he is blind, that in order to protect himself, he felt mm-hmm. the need to kind of be this imposing power while at school. You know, right. Being blind was not a disability for him. Like he could still get what he wanted. But again, this is all assumption based. Conjecture. Yeah, all yeah. conjecture. So in my research, it kind of just jumps. So he's in his <laughs> primary school days. And then suddenly he graduates. He gets married in Mm. 1978 to Tomoko Matsumoto. We don't know a lot about her. All I know about her is that she changed her name to Akari Mm. 
after she was released from prison. <gasps> and I don't know what she was in prison for. Ooh. Like, it's very like little bits of information that could be so much more. But that's right. all I get from them. Wait, so unrelated to the cult, she wasn't yeah. in prison for the cult? Correct. Like what? the cult didn't exist at this point. Oh, yeah. Not in existence at all wow. in 1978. Hmm. So, yeah, he gets married. They have 12 children. Oh, my God. That's a lot of kiddos. <laughs> oh, God. And then after finishing his primary school days, he attempts to get into medical school. He is fascinated in medicine mm-hmm. and he applies to medical programs but gets rejected. And as a result of failing admission, he starts studying acupuncture and pharmacology, which apparently, which apparently, I think more so the acupuncture part. Yeah. But apparently that is a, at the time, a profession that actually quite a lot of blind people did in Japan. What? Apparently. (laughs) Okay. Well, honestly, (laughs) honestly, in my head, my ignorant mind goes, how did they do that? (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I mean, okay, I'm gonna be totally vulnerable here. While I didn't think that I did create this visual of how from a Western mindset, we do kind of stereotype blind Asian folks as mythic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like That's something mm-hmm. that is definitely in media where you have like the old Asian master, right? It's all ridiculous and not yeah. based on facts <laughs> at all. But it was kind of weird to read that like, oh, apparently like, blind people in Japan, that is something that they gravitated towards or maybe like holistic medicine as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why. Again, like I can't make any statements on why that is part of the culture, but that is what I read. That's very cool. Which on that note, I should probably list my resources because like <laughs> classic Megan. <laughs> I know. So real fast, I've pulled from the CDC website, PubChem, The Atlantic. Yeah. There's an article yeah. from The Atlantic that says, what does Surin do to people by James Hamlin? There is a blog post I found by some faction of Harvard University's website, mm-hmm. um, a blog post on Surin. BBC News, Federation of American Scientists, article from Wired from 1990, mm-hmm. 1998. Wow. Like, yeah, from like, way That's back funny. then. And the Japan Times. Ooh, love it. So Sorry, Wiki. All right, so going back out for this episode. <laughs> so Megan's on to the bigger and better things. <laughs> so anyways, he studies pharmacology. He actually opens up a little pharmacy, but is arrested for fraudulent practices oh. and pushing forward like fraudulent Chinese medication oh. because that was his special that's what he specialized in Chinese medicine yeah so he was arrested and as a result he's convicted of these fraudulent practices because he also didn't have a pharmacy degree oh. like he was peddling drugs without a real license <laughs> yeah and um, sure. his pharmacy goes under He's hit with debt because the fine for this fraudulent practices is about 200,000 yen, wow. which at the time would be now 260,000 yen. And if you do the math, that's about like $2,000. Oh, OK. But I think at the time, that's that's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot. That of money. A lot. Yeah. Plus he has 12 kids. <laughs> you know, that's like yeah. a big family. Yeah. So. With his business going under, he starts to really involve himself in studying religion Mm -hmm. and becoming like a religious person. Mm -hmm. He even travels all the way to Nepal and apparently is said to have met the Dalai Lama at some point in his studies. We don't know if it was the current Dalai Lama or the Dalai Lama from back then, but like it said he met the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. As he completes his travels and returns back to Japan, he's kind of like a self-described guru. Mm -hmm. What's unique about his ideology though is that he takes bits and parts from 
all different types of religion. Mm-hmm. Specifically interested in is Taoism, mm-hmm. Buddhism, the apocalyptic aspect of like Christian prophecies. Oh, interesting. And he likes yoga and meditation, but his belief and his practices were like a combination of all of that. Yeah. He also very much believed in the the, the idea of Shambhala and Shiva, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Vajrayana. Vajrayana? Yeah. Like Shiva's destruction. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's all kind of seems to me to go hand in hand with this more apocalyptic sense where destruction and creation of different things and just kind of like shaking things up and I look a new age type of mindset. Yeah, absolutely. So I am glad that I made sure to mention that. So yes, like he did believe in these ideologies of Shiva. And at some point when he does create an actual organization, Mm -hmm. they do believe this future of Shambhala, which is like once the world is destroyed, they will be the ones to kind of create the new world or like, you know, salvage and create a new future, essentially. Right. Right. So he's now this self-proclaimed guru. In around 1984, he creates his own new religion <laughs> called Om Shinsen no Kai, mm-hmm. which originally its main focus was on yoga and meditation class. Like it was like okay. a meditative. He even had a studio. He did move to Tokyo at this point, I believe. And he would like pass out flyers and leaflets saying like, come and meditate with me and my religion. Mm -hmm. Later, three, (laughs) three years later, he changes Om Shinsen no Kai to Om Shinrikyo, Mm -hmm. which I had mentioned before means Supreme Truth. And that's Mm -hmm. in 1987. This is also the same time that he changes his name from Matsumoto to Asahara. Okay. It is said that at this time, he's also kind of going through mental health decline like there's some suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and some paranoia just about the world so again we don't have a lot of i could not find information on like why that might be or like where it's stemming from and so all we know is that when he was a child he was a bully and an aggressor and after you know having children and being in his mid-30s or whatever he's starting to experience mental health decline that's just his personality as we know it right now okay and weirdly people do start to become attracted to what he's kind of preaching and through these leaflets and stuff he starts to modify what he's preaching and he starts to promise Mm -hmm. people like hey through meditation and yoga you can achieve telepathy and levitation and things like that and he's promising these like paranormal aspects of enlightenment and people respond this is where in my research, like the story just skips. It's like, how was he successful in like gaining followers, essentially? Yeah. What's consistent in the story is that a lot of his followers seem to be young, mid-20s Japanese men who were some of the most brilliant, intelligent of their community, working at high-tech organizations like Mm -hmm. Japan, IBM, Toshiba, Hitachi. These are people who were astrophysicists, engineers, genetic engineers, et cetera, et cetera. So brilliant, but so unsatisfied with their life. Yeah. Yep. And this is where I started thinking about how I have no knowledge about Japanese culture during this time mm-hmm. and what it was like for specifically Japanese 
businessmen Mm -hmm. and the working class. Yeah. What pressures might have been on them and why they might have felt so unfulfilled and felt like there was a true calling in meditation that granted the ability to read minds and like levitate and stuff like that. Yeah. Or just like a higher purpose or there's more to life than just me going to my nine to five. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's his initial followers. And he actually becomes so influential that he starts to visit universities, speaks on campuses. And and I think that's how he gets more of a following Mm -hmm. of like these intellectuals. Yeah. And what happens is Alm is then deemed an elite religion or a religion for the elite. Of course. And I think that probably drives more membership. Mm -hmm. In 1989, he actually applies for the government to recognize Om as a religious corporation, like an official Mm -hmm. religious corporation or sect. Um, And so what that achieves essentially is tax breaks, Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. That is granted. Uh, You know, it is said that the Japanese government was at first like, "Eh, we don't know like this seems very weird this new religion that combines all these like old religions together and it just seems very odd but it is granted and what we do learn later is that om actually is quite successful in there's a piece that says reaching its tentacles into like the japanese government there was military members who would be part of om wow there was a couple of police officers who later admitted that they were part of om at some point so there is kind of like this weird underground influence that om had Mm -hmm. when they are granted religious officiality their membership of course rises but also their financial estimate, how much they're worth, mm-hmm. goes up significantly as well. So the cult was worth about 430 million yen at the time. Damn. And it said that it increased to something within the billions of yen. What? And that is because when you join as a member, mm-hmm. you are asked to donate all of your material items, all of your livelihood to the purpose. <laughs> your firstborn son. Yes, yes. And there's an article from the Japan Times that talks about members who defected, essentially. But they talk about how Asahara would get mad at me when I said, like, oh, I can't take the deed from my dad sort of thing. This is where things got extreme because Mm -hmm. if Asahara couldn't get his way like that, he would task people to go and get these defectors or go and attack these people who are kind of withholding from them. Mm -hmm. Naysayers. Right, right, right. Anyone with a no-can-do attitude. Yes, exactly. Anyone with a no-can-do attitude was seen as a threat. Yeah. Even though they clearly weren't. Like, the threat is the organization, ultimately. Here's my question. Mm -hmm. If he can do telepathy and, like, (laughs) read minds, why doesn't he just bend their mind to his will (laughs) and have them sign over all all of the things? I know. That's a great question. As like devil's advocate, I could say technically he did bend quite a lot of people's minds. That is true. There's testimonials of people who like just did not like there would be people who defected and then they would try to get other people out. You know, like the Nixium, the sex cult thing that Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. that was recent. Yeah, yeah. I think about that because I think there's obviously all cults have like similar characteristics. Yeah. But it's the same as that. It's like even though people left for this reason, mm-hmm. there are always going to be members who just are like, I don't see it any other way. Like, yeah. this is what is right to me. And like, I believe in this purpose and blah, 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 blah. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. And 
I agree. Like if you have all these paranormal powers and yeah. things like that, shouldn't you be able to like snap your fingers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you wanted to really just get money. You could like probably get it anytime you wanted. Right. But I, I really quick before you move on, when you were describing just like who, who was involved and how they're very high intellectuals, very brilliant people that are part of this cult. It just reminds me so much. And this is kind of the same with any cult, but specifically mm-hmm. with Jim Jones and our episode, yeah. Don't Drink the Kool-Aid, episode two, that in doing my research, I I was so shocked at how many famous people like that we know to this day that were in awe of Jim Jones and thought he was the most amazing person, right? Yeah. And that just goes to show that these people are very convincing and they believe so, and I think a part of it is like they believe so fervently in themselves and genuinely feel like they are this all-knowing, powerful being that they just have this like magnetism to them that draws people. Absolutely. And I did think about Jim Jones and I did because, again, like there are so many similarities between these cult stories and that's what makes Mm -hmm. them ultimately a cult. But I think what blows my mind is both Jim Jones and Shoko Asahara came from really in-affluent backgrounds. They were Mm -hmm. from poor families and just through the power of charisma, like question mark, like this is where I'm almost like disbelief, like through the power of charisma alone, they were able to influence so many people and accumulate wealth it's just kind of mind-blowing i don't i don't know yeah literally mind-blowing yeah so they're recognized officially as a real religion and a real organization because they do get tax breaks from that they're actually able to fly under the radar with doing a lot of fraudulent things that the government because there's a lot more freedoms with religious organizations Mm -hmm. and the government can't intervene with that got it that's why they're able to do these shady things Mm -hmm. for example their main compound was in the Yamanashi Prefecture, which is one prefecture over from Tokyo Prefecture. Okay. But at this compound, they were producing chemical weapons and agents, oh my God. including Surin, including VX. No. Phosgenes and sodium cyanide. Like, this just is tying into, like, because the government could not intervene with their religious freedoms, they were able to do some shady business. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. They're just like, okay, now that no one is able to do anything, we're just going to go for the most extreme of activities. So we're just going to create a poison palace. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll go back and explain why were they even creating this poison palace, right? Because it ties into their beliefs and stuff. But as I said earlier, a lot of Asahara's scriptures were deeply based in this idea that Armageddon was coming. Armageddon was something that was going to happen and that him and all his followers, all these intellects were there to shape the future post-Armageddon. Right. And I think that's why you see in their history that they buy, like, facilities, even all the way in Perth, Australia, they bought a facility. In Russia, they, like, buy land there. And they buy land in these different countries to be able to experiment, okay, if an apocalypse does happen, Mm -hmm. what can we do? How can we grow things? Mm. But it's like... To me, they didn't even get to the part of like, how can we rebuild? They were more focused on the part of simulating Armageddon, if that makes sense. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, like the land that they bought in Russia was like 300 plus acres. And there's a theory that I think actually is debunked, but there's a theory that they were interested in buying some sort of like warhead to test on that land. 
so that they could practice simulating Armageddon. Jesus. Yeah, it's crazy. So they were really, really playing pretend, like hardcore. Yes, yes, they were. And here's what's also like just ludicrous. (laughs) Okay. So the one Wired article that I pulled up, Mm -hmm. it's a very fascinating read. I had mentioned earlier that it was written in 1996. So I had mentioned like it's an old article. So I would actually encourage people to go and check out this article. It's called Ohm's Shoko Asahara and the Cult at the End of the World, written by David E. Kaplan and Andrew Marshall. Mm -hmm. I actually have a lot of issues with this article because it was written during this time. There's Mm -hmm. actually quite a lot of problematic language in it and like in my head like underlying biased opinions about Japanese culture mm-hmm. and so that's where I'm like eh, like I'm, I'm not going to use this as my main source of information however they do talk about what inspired the cults altogether in focusing so much on like this idea of post-apocalyptic future I'm going to read to you all In this article, it is said that they actually were inspired by Western science fiction novels Mm -hmm. that talked about post-apocalyptic events and like what would come and science fiction novels that talked about prophecies and the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Specifically, Isaac Asimov's sci-fi epic Planet Trantor as their blueprint for all the things that they did. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read to you on this in quotes. The empire will vanish in all its good with it. Its accumulated knowledge will decay, and the order it has imposed will vanish. This could be Shoko Asahara talking, but it is Hari Selden, a science fiction figure 10,000 years in the future. Selden is the key character in the Foundation series, Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi epic, and he would give Mirai and Alm their high-tech blueprint for the millennium and beyond. For context, Murai is one of the members of the cult. He's one of the lead members of Ulm. Okay. Selden, who is the fictional character in the Foundation series, is a brilliant mathematician and warns that the Galactic Empire will fall into ruin for a thousand generations. Interstellar wars will be endless, Selden tells a skeptical but threatened government. The Empire fails to heed his warnings, prompting Selden to take matters into his own hands. Mm -hmm. Asimov's core trilogy, written in the 1940s, depicts his hero's efforts to save humanity by forming a secret society that can rebuild civilization in a single millennium. Mm -hmm. It is not hard to see the parallels between Trantor... In modern Japan, for years, in fact, Japanese engineers have worked at developing what they call super depth construction with plans to build the world's first underground city by 2020, which is funny because we have surpassed that. So that's always interesting to like read stuff on the past. Right. But the similarities did not end there. In Foundation, Hari Selden gathers the best minds of his time. Scientists, historians, technologists, and, like monks in the Middle Ages, sets about preserving the knowledge of the universe. So basically what we're getting at here is, and later on it is confirmed in the article, that they literally took a science fiction novel Mm -hmm. and used it as inspiration for their beliefs. Right. And it is confirmed by this Hideo Murai character. Mm -hmm. He, at the time, does an interview with the Japan Times and is like, oh yeah, we love Isaac Asimov's (laughs) Foundation series. There you go. (laughs) 
Here's another fun part of this article that made me laugh. It's talking a little about mm-hmm. Hideo Mirai. He was an astrophysicist and just happened to really like what Asahara was offering through Ohm. So Mirai ended up becoming the chief scientist for Ohm. And wow. he was the chief engineer of their hypothetical apocalypse as well. In the article, it goes, Mirai's parents tried desperately to talk him out of it. But their son simply handed them a copy of Jonathan Livingston Seagull, the one-time bestseller about a seagull struggle to learn to fly. The novel, he told them, expressed his true feelings. In parentheses, quote, I hate that book, his mother later said. <laughs> and Mariah was a young guy in his 20-somethings. And it's just, I'm tangenting like all over the place. But like after I read that, it did make me think... Two of my favorite films out of Japan are like dystopian animation films. Mm. One is Akira, Mm -hmm. which came out in the 1980s. And the other, Ghost in the Shell, which came out in 1995. And what's so interesting, this is, again, where I'm like, I have a limited knowledge of Japanese culture. I do believe that during this time, like the late 80s through the mid 90s, there was a huge fascination on dystopian technological progress, what the future was going to bring, all these things. And in some way, I would say that probably attributed to like what we see as Japan now, which is an amazing powerhouse for like technological progress. Mm -hmm. But the Wired article kind of made like snide remarks about how all these young 20 something guys are just into this sci-fi. Yeah, this fake world. Yeah, yeah, like this fake world. They're just young kids who are in their fantasy land. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but yeah, that definitely is a theme of pop culture in Japan I at agree. the time. Yeah. Anyways, I think that gives you a pretty good idea of what yes. OM is, what their ideologies are. Leading up to the 1995 attack, the public was seeing them more and more as a threat. So there were police investigations starting into their organization because there were rumors from defectors saying some of our members are being experimented on, which is true, used electroshock therapy and stuff like that in a way that was not humane. Yeah. Yeah, They they were doing blood initiation stuff, Mm. which members would pay up to a million yen to drink the blood of Asahara. There was rumors that they were murdering people who spoke against them, which is true, actually, in 1989, right after they got official recognition to be a religious organization, there was actually this lawyer, his name was Sakamoto, who was a human rights activist, and he was fighting for these people who fled from Ohm. Oh, wow. And he, his wife, and his one-year-old son ended up disappearing that year. And it was found out after the 95 attacks that the Ohm members did kill his whole family what? and buried them. Yeah. <gasps> So just crazy, crazy, horrible stuff. Oh, my God. The police were starting to investigate them because they knew bad shit was happening. Yeah. I think Asahara, in his declining mental state, felt pressure to mm-hmm. jumpstart this Armageddon. Yeah. And so they were like, let's do this attack on the Tokyo trains. Mm-hmm. And what we find out after the Tokyo attacks is that they actually did a test run <gasps> nine months earlier in 94 in Matsumoto which is in the Nagano prefecture in which eight people died. They did it in another station and hundreds more were injured. And they also used Surin during that time. Okay. So why did the attack happen? In ways, many reasons. In ways, not a lot of reasons. <laughs> they were just enacting what they believed in. Yeah. 
But I think they were also enacting revenge on the government. Mm -hmm. Also trying to distract the government from looking into them further (laughs) by like using this attack. I know it seems totally backwards, right? Which it totally, totally is backwards because ultimately the attack led to their arrests. Right. In the aftermath, Asahara was arrested, convicted, along with some lead members of Aum. Apparently, I forget his name, but apparently one of them actually fled and escaped arrest for like 17 years. And then they found him and then he was arrested. But Asahara and those who were arrested at the time, they were sentenced to death in like 2004 Mm -hmm. and had like opportunities to appeal to see if they could change that outcome, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They ended up exhausting all their appeals and Asahara was hanged. Wow. Dang. Yep. I didn't even know they still did that. I didn't know either. I'm learning this now, but I guess that is what they do in Japan. And maybe it depends on the offense. Yeah. So if anyone knows more about that, let us know on Twitter or Instagram. And then, you know, what happened to the cult? So after the arrest and after the attack, the cult does kind of go underground, Mm -hmm. but it ultimately splits into two fractures, one called Aleph, A-L-E-P-H, and the other called Hikari no Wa, which means circle of light. Oh, God. <laughs> which I think is so pleasant. Yeah. But like, you know, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> These came about because the Japanese government was like, the original OM needs to demand. We, we no longer recognize mm-hmm. it as a religious organization. But so then these two other factions came out of it from like pre-existing members of OM. And the government, this is where I'm like, in a way, I feel like this is very generous of Japan's government. But they were like... All right. Yes, you're two factions that came out of Om, but we will grant you the ability to practice your religion if you really are stating that you're not doing the violent acts that Om used previously. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, Japan, like the yeah. Japanese government, made it very clear that hey, while you two may exist, we will surveil you. And so Hakari Nawa, the Circle of Light group, yeah, they were surveilled up until 2017, and now they like practice openly. The Aleph group, I guess, is still a little bit problematic in some ways. Okay. They were going to lift the surveillance by 2017 as well, but then they decided to continue it. And so they're still being surveilled today. They feel like very strong members of OM were in Aleph. So yeah, that's the cults part. Mm -hmm. Now you've learned about a whole new cult. Wow. Wow. So terrifying. So how old was he when this all went down, like when he passed away and things like that or killed, I guess? He was born in 55. The attacks were in 95. And then he was executed in 2018. Yeah. So he was an old dude by the time he died. Wow. But relatively young when he was doing all these things, like definitely a young leader for a big organization. Yeah. I'm so curious what his kids think about all of this. I wonder if they were also in in into the cult thing or I don't know. Yeah, that's another good question. So, as I had said earlier, when Harina and I before we were recording, in my head I was like, there is so much more to the story. I did run across articles that talked about his daughter on the day of his execution. Mm. But that's a great question and we can definitely talk offline and I'll be like, okay, this is this is what the children right, right. But I think the article the fact that there's an article title out there alone that says like daughter you know, is present on the day of his execution means that they were somehow still involved or related or something. Yeah. Even though I've literally talked for probably 50 plus minutes, there's just so much to the I bet. Yeah. Dude, that is that is such a crazy 
crazy story. And like I said, I had learned about this story recently, maybe not even a month ago. Mm -hmm. And I had, you know, jotted it down. I was like, oh, that's that's so fascinating. We haven't done Surin yet as a poison or toxin. And Again, to me, I find it so rare that, you know, a cult-like story would pop out of Japan mm. on such a grand scale, too. So for all of the above reasons, I found this story so fascinating. Yeah. When I was in high school, I used to read a lot of manga. That does not make me yeah. an expert on anything. But <laughs> I did have a fascination in kind of more macabre genres, like psychological thriller mangas, and one of them had mm-hmm. to do with the suicide pact group, which I think was a thing that happened in Japan in real life. But there was a manga about it that basically talked about like these high school girls made a suicide pact and they were all just killing themselves off. And I think it, it oh on a more clinical psych level, it was talking about the idea of group think phenomenon, yeah. group hysteria in some way. Mm hmm. You said, you know, I'm surprised that like this cult came out of Japan. I am surprised too. I'm surprised at the cult ideologies and stuff. But <laughs> based on my reading psychological horror manga, yeah, I don't think it's totally crazy because you do see themes yeah. of cult cultism and things like that in these fictional areas and narratives. Yeah. I guess it can happen anywhere. Truly, it can. To finish up, we're going to talk about the toxicology of Surin real fast, because mm-hmm. that is actually supposed to be the star of the show. <laughs> but uh, star of the show. Yeah. Surin, as I had mentioned earlier, it is a nerve agent. It is in the same organophosphates category as pesticides, as previous toxins we've talked about, such as VX and Novichok. So mm-hmm. they're all akin in terms of their toxicology and toxicity. Right. And as I had mentioned earlier, Surin was developed in 1938. There's two differing accounts from what I researched. It says 1937 or 1938, somewhere in that time, it was developed by a German chemist. His name is Gerhard Schrader. And he had developed an insecticide that turned out to be Surin, which made me laugh because there was a comment in one of the articles that was like, oh, I was I was just looking up like nerve agents in general. The article said, yeah, most nerve agents were made because we were trying to create insecticides. Right. Right. In my head, I'm like, are we that disgusted by bugs and scared of like locusts yeah. and famine? that we just need to obliterate (laughs) everything with chemicals. You know, it just made me think like you're trying to make an insecticide, but you've created a nerve agent. And right, right. I don't know. It's an interesting science, I guess. I just, I just think of it as this, this sliding scale where you have a, this tiny little insect where on a scale of one to 10, a chemical agent that's on 0.5 would have done the trick, but they went all the way to 10. Yeah. They're like, we need to kill this bug, kill its ancestors and its pre- <laughs> and its predecessors, and then salt the earth behind you, sort of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what was supposed to be an insecticide turned into a chemical warfare agent that ultimately, like it was studied by the Nazis, you know, think about the time period it was created. However, the Nazis did not use it ever wow. uh, because in World War I, one, yeah. we do know that mustard gas was used. Yeah. Obviously, Nazis were not around as a party at the time. But I think there is something that said, like, the Nazis did not use Surin because they didn't want that global retaliation against them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of always weird to hear there was almost like a moral capacity there when it came yeah. to using a nerve agent. Yeah. 
but anyways so they never use it yeah yeah because it is more toxic than and then chlorine gas anyways yeah Surin is clear, colorless, and tasteless. It's typically, once again, I know, it's clear, colorless, and tasteless. I was literally texting Harini and I was like, dude, learning about all these nerve <laughs> agents, I'm like, how would I know? Like, how, how would anybody yeah. know if they're all clear, colorless, and tasteless? And now I'm just constantly paranoid. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not. But like, researching these things definitely makes you see the world differently. Like, I, like I was at the farmer's market and was like anything can happen (laughs) yeah it has no odor either in its pure form one thing that you need to know about sarin's form like its Mm -hmm. physicality is that sarin is actually denser than air and so when it is emitted as a vapor it actually falls below air level like whatever you know, whatever like atmospheric goes, pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. whatever whatever gases compose air naturally, Surin's heavier than that. So okay. in the context of the Surin leaking on the subway trains, it honestly, I think it's pretty smart and diabolical to use that as a biohazard. Because when you're on the subway, that's the lowest point anyways. It's it's congested. Oh, it's yeah. below ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's going to just ruminate in that environment. So for people to get out and get to a higher level of elevation to get away from the Surin would be extremely challenging. So that's yeah. just one aspect of Surin that I wanted to share that if there was a contemporary Surin attack, mm-hmm. but you are in kind of like an open environment, the one thing that you would need to do is just get to an elevated area. So that oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, because yeah. it, it just it won't travel up basically Correct. past a certain pressure or atmospheric pressure. Correct. Yeah, it pools. When I was reading the CDC definition and like it's how it describes Surin and and its physical state, it talked about how like typically Surin, if it's released in the environment, it will pool in basements. It will pool in sewer systems like it goes down. <laughs> so oh, interesting. When they go low, we go high. Damn straight. Michelle Obama. Wait, was it Michelle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Michelle. I love it. So Surin actually happens to be the most volatile of the nerve agents. Mm. Volatile meaning that its form can change very quickly. So it's usually produced in a liquid form, but it evaporates very fast into a gaseous form. Yeah. Way faster than the other nerve agents. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that was the first thing that I kind of picked up when you were telling the intro hook part Mm -hmm. of the story Mm -hmm. of how everything went down in the subway or in subway car, sorry. But when you were saying like it was in these, you said it was in these suitcases, right? Yes. In these suitcases, the liquid was leaking Mm -hmm. and then it was immediately evaporating into thin air. Yeah. And I was like, wow, there's not a lot of substances on this earth Mm -hmm. that go from like a liquid to a gaseous state that fast, like right right before your eyes. So that that was very interesting. Yeah. And right before your eyes without any additional chemistry involved in that, like it just turns into air right away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point because sometimes when things go from a liquid to a gaseous state, they usually give off like an odor or something. Mm -hmm. So that's really tricky that it doesn't have any odor at all. Yeah. Pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah, it's really scary. Fun fact that I'm just going to throw in here. Yeah. The technical acronym or like the military name that CERN goes by is GB, like the letters GB. Mm -hmm. I don't know what B stands for, but I know the G 
indicates that it's made by Germans. Oh. So there's a whole G series of nerve agents. Oh, interesting. Surin being one of uh-huh. them. So there's Surin, which is GB, Tabin, which is GA, and Somin, which is GD, and Cycloserin, which is GF. Whoa. And these are all G series nerve agents, meaning they were all made by Germany. Wow. Yeah. Right off the, my head, I'm thinking the B stands for like German Bratwurst. <laughs> Bratwurst. <laughs> Yeah, okay, now I'm going too far. <laughs> yeah. German yeah. beer. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But I like exactly. that idea because that would be that would make such a horrible thing so much more fun. <laughs> okay. So once you have been exposed to Surin, and again, it can be it can right. exposure means it's on your skin or it's even on your clothes. It's inhaled. It can mean any sort of contact on your body, including liquid, including liquid, like okay. liquid could touch you, blah, blah, blah. The symptoms that would occur once you Surin makes contact with you, the symptoms depend on if you've been exposed to the vapor version of Surin or to the liquid version of Surin. It says that if you are exposed to the vapor version, symptoms can occur within seconds. And that makes sense because usually like anything that's inhalated, that's the quickest way to your bloodstream. Like, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Straight to your brain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's when you will probably be feeling effects so quickly. Yeah. If you are exposed to a liquid, like a little splash gets on your hand, that could take from between a few minutes to hours. I think the minutes would probably be like, okay, let's say you got it on your eyeball or oh like God. your tongue, you know, like, okay, that's going to be minutes. But if you got it on like the back of your hand, that might take hours depending on how it interacts with the rest of your body. Right. It is said that even if it just makes contact, like surface contact with your skin, whatever patch of skin it lands on will start to actually sweat on its own and start to react in that area. Ew. Yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> and so what they say, just kind of just like VX or just like Novichok, they do say <laughs> if you make that surface contact, like yeah. wash your hands or like try to clean that area as fast as you can. Yeah. There is military grade topical antidotes for this. The one that I I think it's like an official topical antidote for nerve agents. Yeah. And it's called reactive skin decontamination lotion. So RSDL. Uh Uh-huh. There is a whole website dedicated to this product. They have that on Sephora. Yeah. (laughs) They better start dropping it at Sephora. (laughs) I know. Campaign for that shit. But uh, so, yeah. So there's military grade lotion that you can use to wipe this stuff off. If it is at the level that you've like got it in your bloodstream and it's you can't just wipe it off with lotion. Mm -hmm. Your antidotes are going to be atropine. When in doubt, atropine at all times, to be honest. Yes, yes, yes. I'm starting to realize that so much of this you can possibly see in combat in the military and otherwise. Mm -hmm. I'd be so, so curious to hear about any listeners we may have who are in the military, Army, Navy, Marines, all of the above, that may have had contact with such things or have stories on that. I'd be very curious. So email us at that shit is poison, if you can even say (laughs) Dude, so, okay, before I get back to the toxicity aspect, since you've said that, Surin is actually a lot more topical recently within the last seven years for military. 
because I don't know if you remember this and it wasn't until I researched that it like triggered the memory, but mm-hmm. um, there was a certain chemical attack slash usage in Syria in 2013. And mm. this was obviously when President Obama was still around, but he actually had made a statement about like when nerve agents are used in war, that's like mm-hmm. we have to draw a line or something. Right, right. I understand but my brain also goes like, well, all war is horrible. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. where do we draw the line with just everything that happens in war? You know what I mean? And exactly. that just brings up another just food for thought. Like, why do we draw a line with nerve agents? Like, why do we feel mm-hmm. so strongly about bioterrorism and like chemical warfare in war? Yeah. As opposed to people being just shelled all day. Right. What's worse? And yeah, I, I agree. Rhetorical questions, but it's just yeah. like food for thought. But because you were asking like specifically military. Yeah, I'm sure there are folks in the military who maybe had firsthand experience with that Surin attack in Syria. That was a recent contemporary use yeah. of it. OK. Yeah, definitely. So going back to its toxicity and antidotes. So I had mentioned atropine, which is... If you had listened to our previous nerve agent episodes with Novotov and BX, atropine is basically just a substitute for acetylcholinesterase. Mm-hmm. What happens with nerve agents is that you have the neurotransmitter acetylcholine in your system. Acetylcholinesterase is the enzyme that breaks down that transmitter. Okay. Acetylcholinesterase, when it breaks down acetylcholine, it means acetylcholine is cleaned from the synapses. And your muscle contractions can remain normal. Yeah. When you have a nerve agent in you, that acetylcholinesterase enzyme is blocked and acetylcholine remains in the synapse, just bouncing around and accumulating, Mm -hmm. making those muscle contractions. Muscle contractions or other sympathetic nervous system things just go full speed ahead. Yeah, haywire. What can happen with that is Harini had used this term earlier, sludge. Yeah. Salivation. Lacrimation. Lacrimation. Urination. Defecation. All that stuff Mm -hmm. happens because your body is just being told by this acetylcholine neurotransmitter to just keep doing. Right. Which is also why on the train, on the subway, people started to throw up because the E in sludge is emesis or vomiting. Mm -hmm. They started throwing up. I'm sure they were just like leaking out of every end, you know? Yes. Literally. Yeah. That's lethal as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it was also like that's an aspect of even if it's just topical, even if it just gets on your skin, mm-hmm. that little patch of your skin starts to sweat because Correct. those little transmitters there are getting blocked and your skin is saying sweat, 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 exactly. sweat. Exactly. So what atropine does as an antidote, it comes in and it acts as kind of like a replacement for acetylcholine esterous. It starts to break down the acetylcholine. Mm-hmm. There is another antidote, pralidoxime. Mm-hmm. So the reason why pralidoxime is, tends to be partnered as an antidote is because atropine only deals with that physiological aspect, that sludge aspect. Pralidoxime has an important role in reversing paralysis of the respiratory muscles. But due to its poor blood-brain barrier penetration, it has little effect on centrally mediated respiratory depression. What we saw with Kim Jong-nam's assassination, that's how he ultimately passed was through asphyxiation after he went through like a seizure. 
Yeah. T-Pam also will attach to sarin in the blood. Mm-hmm. Sarin essentially will attach to cholinesterase, mm-hmm. which is what Megan had said. So it essentially pulls the sarin off cholinesterase. Yeah. That way cholinesterase can work again. Nice. Drugs are cool, man. <laughs> like that, yeah. that chemistry is like, damn. Like this is the thing that blows my mind about pharmacology is like, how the hell did we as humans figure out how to manipulate these organic compounds into going into our body and doing it exactly what we want it to do. It's just... I know. And it it blows my mind in the sense that I feel like we learned it very quickly in the, you know, in the history yeah. of humanity. In such a short amount of time, we figured these things out, you know? Yeah. And here's another thing. This is tying it back to the military exposure to Surin and the, the Syria attacks. Mm-hmm. This is what I found from that Harvard article is that because of those attacks in Syria, the military had actually started looking into nano drugs that you inject into your system. I'm putting that very simply, but you inject mm-hmm. it into your system, like military personnel inject it into their system so that when they go out in the field, they will automatically be protected internally wow. by nerve agents if wow. there's any type of nerve agent exposure. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Navalny needs this. Alexei Navalny needs a PSA for you, I know. my good sir. We hope you're okay. Maybe that's why he so he so confidently walked into the lion's den. He was like, honey, I got this. Uh, I know. We can only hope. I, we can only hope. I totally appreciate his confidence. And uh, I'm still like, we may never see that man again. I know. So that's it. That is the story of the 1995 Tokyo attacks at the hands of this crazy cult called Om led by Shoko Asahara, and how they used Surin, a nerve agent, to create terror in Tokyo. Wow. Terror in Tokyo. That's going to be the episode title. (laughs) Damn, it probably will be one. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, that was such a great telling. And even though you said that you aren't doing it justice by not going down all the rabbit holes, I feel like that was a really good in-depth. Thank you. We appreciate it. I think the other reason why I felt overwhelmed by it is in previous recordings, we've talked about cults, okay? Yes. In previous recordings, we've talked about nerve agents. In previous recordings, Mm -hmm. we've talked about bioterrorism. This was all of those combined. And that's why I was like, there's just so much here. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think it almost worked out in your favor that we had already talked about those things because you didn't have to go as in-depth over again, you know? True, true. true. We already talked about it. So it worked out really well. And yeah, it was just a good mishmash of everything all in one. Thanks. I think that's a wrap. So we can head into our antidotes. So my antidote of the week is I am currently working across the bridge. I'm in San Francisco right now and I'm working in Sonoma. So in wine country, it's a little bit of a drive. If people know San Francisco to Sonoma is a a little over an hour, sometimes under an hour, if you're lucky. And at first I was like, this drive is going to take so much out of my time. Like I'm not happy about this. I was already pissed. But, um, (laughs) But now it's become one of the things I look forward to the most in my work week because I'm driving through wine country and I thought January, it's going to be bare. It's still going to be like wintry, you know, like in terms of the landscape, Mm -hmm. but already everything is blooming right now. It's so gorgeous. Everything is literally like bright green. Literally looks like the sound of music every time I drive through. It's like these rolling lush green hills, pastures from as far as I can see. 
And there's just so many beautiful brown cows that are just grazing out in the morning and the California cows that are bathed in this golden sunlight when I drive through. And it is just so serene and beautiful. And I'm just like, I feel so lucky to be able to do this drive. And it just puts me in a good mood for the rest of the day. So that is my antidote. Oh, I love that. And as someone who grew up in Northern California, yeah. I know what you're talking about when it's like in the Emperor's New Groove when the sun hits that peak, like the hills sing or whatever. And and it's so true about the cows. Okay, so you know when there's the commercial that's like, happy cows come from California, blah, 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 blah. I'm totally butchering yeah. that. But yeah, like, yeah. when I think of happy cows come from California, those are the cows, like specifically cows yes. from North Bay Area, North San Francisco area. Like think Sonoma County, think Point Reyes. It is those lush green hills yes. and these cows are like free. Shout out to cows. They are so underrated. Yeah. <laughs> I freaking love cows. And these are these like furry, they're like shaggy brown cows. That's awesome. Yeah, those are those are the cows that are happy. Those are those are not the cows you see in the valley on the giant like industrial farms. <laughs> no, 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 no. When you're driving to there, hell no, in Fresno. Oh, hell no. Uh, anyways. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great antidote. And I love that view. I, I know that drive. I know what it looks like when it's fresh and green. So, <laughs> so love it. My antidote. <laughs> it's like this every single week. <laughs> it's like, I, I hate my life. No, <laughs> then she pulls something out of the bag that is amazing. I think I struggle with antidotes and I don't mean to toot my own optimistic horn, but I tend to have a naturally happy demeanor yeah. and outlook on life. And so maybe like everything doesn't seem like an antidote because just everything's kind of like one big antidote rose colored in my yeah. world yeah <laughs> exactly oh i saw the sunset today <laughs> and i i live by the beach so it's easy for me to go walk and catch the sunset and just today's sunset was a good one I love that. And it's always feels really great when I like walk and put the effort into like catching yeah. it sort of thing. True. And it pays off because it's just so glorious and golden. And today's hues were like lavender and pink and like a deep persimmon sky. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Love it. Love yeah. it. Love it. Anyway, that was a really great episode, Megan. Thank you for your story, for sharing us and blessing us with this Poison Palace story. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Poison Pals, for listening along for another episode. So next week, we will come back with my story, whatever that may be. Yep. Yep. But until then, Megan, take us out of this episode. Don't risk it for that <sighs> Surin biscuit. <laughs> Oh, it's not good. No, bro. You can, no, you can come up with something better. Uh, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. All right. Don't risk it for that doomsday biscuit. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. All right. And if you see suitcases on a subway, run the other direction. Yeah. Leave that shit behind. Leave that shit behind. All right. Peace. Goodbye, guys. Mm -hmm.